Well, good morning. Lovely to be here with you, including Grandpa up the back, who was greeted on as his little granddaughter walked out the door. I love it. Uh, So good to be with you again and to share with you. Let me pray. Father, we ask as we look at your word again that uh, you would take the principles that you want to be cemented in our life and in our behaviour and cause us to be more like you, Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, Chuck Swindle, some of you may have read a series of his books on different characters in the Bible. And uh, one which I have enjoyed immensely, just finished reading, is on the book of Job. Sounds a nice, happy little (laughs) topic, but it is outstanding. And in it, he tells this story. It's a true story. And forgive me, I'm going to read it because I don't think I can tell it better than Chuck himself. This is what he says. I'll never forget hearing about the tragedy that has struck a family of one child. The mother died abruptly and early in the child's life. The father and daughter were suddenly left with only the memory of this wonderful wife and mother. Their grief and sorrow went deep. The night following the funeral, as the father tucked his daughter in bed, his heart went out to her, seeing that she was fighting back tears. And he decided that he'd move a bed in there. He pulled it up close beside his daughter's bed and they soon fell asleep. In the middle of the night he heard her crying and he called her name. Through her tears she said, Daddy, it's so hard, I just miss her so much. And fighting back his own tears, he reached over and took her hand. She said, oh, that's so much better. And she put her hand over on his shoulder and on his chest. And wanting to comfort her, he said, You know, sweetheart, you have the Lord to lean on. And she said, I know that, Daddy, but tonight I just need someone with skin on. Powerful statement, isn't it? Something that we probably would not want to admit out loud, that there are times, aren't there, in our experience, that we just wish we had someone with skin on in the terms of God to somehow do that. Um, I think uh, when we have moments when our heart is broken through a whole variety of things, be it a surprise doctor's uh, prognosis, uh, be it in terms of a relational issue that has gone on and on and on and just doesn't seem to want to work itself out. Or for some of us, maybe years and years of just the financial pressure of trying to make ends meet, that there comes times when we feel utterly helpless. Utterly helpless. And the reason I say this and I give this story this morning is because I think what we're about to read in Isaiah 36 and 37 is very helpful for any of us who are sitting here this morning for any one of a variety of reasons or are out there in online land for any one of a variety of reasons are feeling helpless 
And you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, I don't feel helpless. Um, but do you know someone who does? And does the very thought of trying to help the person who feel helpless make you helpless? That this chapter is good. And I trust it's going to be an encouragement to you this morning. Now, the background to this chapter is war. A war is outrageous, isn't it? It's uh, life-shattering, horrific, brutal. And you and I know that war is more than just a battlefield of shooting bullets and dropping bombs. Because when populations are plagued by war, there's all kinds of brutality and torture and rape and terrible things that happen that just scar the people in that particular countryside. War is ugly. And and even as you've read the Old Testament, and you read numbers there that, like even what we read this morning, 185, you read numbers which are huge of people who have been killed in war. And what we're reading here is ugly too. Because here it's the Assyrians who have come in war against Jerusalem. In fact, um, in biblical times, uh, I read this quote, there is no more brutal nation in war than the Assyrians out of all of the people that are listed in the Old Testament. Let me read you a quote that I read. The Assyrians were very creative about the brutality They would cut off legs, arms, noses, tongues, ears and testicles. They would gouge out the eyes of their prisoners. Cruelty was the Assyrian instrument of control. They used brutality as a psychological tool to prevent rebellions in their realm. They also used it to make other nations submit to them without resistance. This is the army that has surrounded Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles 32, 1, it says, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. So the people who are in Jerusalem, who are surrounded by this army, already know that this Assyrian army has marched through the country land of Judah. And in the annals, and it's interesting, I read this in my NIV notes, in the annals of Sennacherib, that's not inspired, but what he wrote, it says um, that he had conquered uh, 46 cities, taken outright, taken outlaying towns which had no walls around them, and had captured already, this is before he's got around the walls of Jerusalem, had captured already over 200,000 captives from the land of Judah. And here they are, outside the walls of Jerusalem. Now, he is parked at a place called Lachish, which we read in the text there. That's about 48k outside of Jerusalem. But he sends from his horde this large army and... They must have been, when it talks about the laundress gate and whatever it is that's there in the text, I think, where was that? (laughs) I looked it up and couldn't find out. But it must have been close enough to the city walls that when we read about the delegation uh, trying to get a peace talk, the people up on the walls could hear 
them talking down there as they were trying to negotiate peace. So if you were in Jerusalem, imagine this, and you were looking out of the city walls from Jerusalem, everywhere you looked, doesn't matter where it was, like, like ants on sugar, there's these soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. Not just soldiers, but soldiers that are brutal. And you can begin to appreciate the sense of helplessness that they must have felt. Now, now why was Sennacherib there? It wasn't just to expand his empire. He certainly was doing that. But eight years earlier, um, our friend Hezekiah had decided he was not going to pay any more tribute. They were like under every nation that was under the influence of Assyria had to pay tribute. And he said, no, I'm not paying any more. And so when Sennacherib sends his commander with these people around the wall, um, he's not just there to expand his kingdom, he's there to make them pay because they haven't paid their tribute. And interestingly, in Chronicles, it says that um, Hezekiah had taken gold and silver out of the temple to try to appease him, but it was too late. It was too late. So what does Hezekiah do? He says, well, I'll try and negotiate a peace. Look in verse 2 of Isaiah 36. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And when the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundressville, that's where this negotiation was to take place. It was just a sliver of hope for those people in Jerusalem that they thought maybe, you can imagine them thinking this, maybe he'll make peace. Maybe our children won't be slaughtered. Maybe we won't be tortured. Maybe the city of Jerusalem won't be decimated. And so this sliver of hope was in this negotiation for peace. Look at the helplessness from the text in Isaiah 36 of this whole situation. The Israelites' force, one, were totally outnumbered. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 36, this is the the commander who was meant to be negotiated, who was uh, talking to the delegation that had come out from Jerusalem. <laughs> Get the sarcasm in what he says. He, he knows they're outnumbered. He says this, Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. Hey, I'll give you 2,000 of my horses. <laughs> As if you could put a rider on them, he says. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials? And the people on the wall knew he was right. And then the hopelessness of the situation where they knew that this Assyrian army had been incredibly successful. They, he had moved through Samaria, which is above Judea, taken them out. And obviously taken out many other nations. And the commander says in verse 18, Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. 
Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? We are unbeatable. That's the second evidence of helplessness. And then the third evidence of helplessness is in verses 19 and 20 when he, this, this commander says to this little group of three who are trying to negotiate peace, he says to them, how successful have the gods of the other nations been? Implication, you don't really believe that your God is going to save you. The fourth evidence of helplessness is the guy reminds his little group of three, you thought that Egypt was going to come and help you. (laughs) They're just like a splinter in your finger. They will be useless. Man, you are on your own. The fifth evidence of helplessness was sheer logic. You ever been in a situation where you think, logically, if God doesn't come through, I'm cactus, to coin an old Mexican expression. <laughs> you ever been in a situation like that? If God does, it's just logical. That, and this was one of those situations. 36.20 says, Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from that? That, that was just logic. You are going to lose. And then the the last and final evidence that there is a helplessness here is the reaction of our little threesome that went out to negotiate. What did they do? They grabbed their clothes and they tear them. (laughs) And they, they come to Hezekiah weeping. Now why? Because they knew that this situation seemed impossible and it was only going to be a matter of time before the siege would work and they'd be slaughtered and they'd be alive no more. And what's Hezekiah do? He does the same thing. Verse 1 of chapter 37, When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. Can you feel the helplessness, that flavour through this whole chapter? And that brings us to well, it's not a very happy principle, but a principle that's here is God's people have moments of helplessness. It is a fact of our Christian life. Ask Moses. Stands there and there's the Egyptian army thumping towards them and he's got a sea in front of him. They're helpless. Ask Paul in the boat, and everyone's given up hope that they're ever going to survive this storm. (laughs) How do they feel helpless? Ask Daniel, dropped into a a, a den of lions. Hey, Daniel, how do you feel? (laughs) Apart from scared, (laughs) he'd feel helpless. Ask Job. He's sitting in ashes, scraping the boils from his aunt. How do you feel, Job? Helpless. God's people including you and including me, have moments of helplessness. I I think for me, um, the moments, some of the moments I've felt most helpless is when I haven't been able to do something with my kids when they're in pain. 
I remember our oldest child, Kim, when she was five, she'd um, gone into a fit and we took her into hospital. I don't think they do it this way now, but they'd lay her on a bed and bend her back and I had to hold her down while they drove a needle in the back to take some fluid out of her spine with a lumbar puncture. And I remember, I still remember it. She's 45, 46 now. I can still hear a voice saying, Daddy, help me. And I could do nothing. And then the time when my son was sitting on the right on lawnmower with him and he fell off and his hand went underneath and we thought he'd lost the whole of his left hand and I looked at that bloodied mess there. I could do nothing. Just felt helpless. And then the time when, when I remember kneeling down with my arms around my daughter and one of my grandson in the hospital and just crying because we just lost unexpectedly our five-year-old granddaughter. Just helpless. Now, your experience of helpless may not be that, like that, but you've had it, haven't you? Just like the people in Jerusalem felt it and Hezekiah felt it. And I suppose in this day of pandemic, there, there must be many, many people who feel the same. So what do we learn from this apart from going out of here and feeling depressed because we're having moments of helplessness under people's threats in this case? Well, I think there are three things I'd like to leave you with. One is, there comes a time when you have done everything that God would want you to do in terms of your responsibility in a helpless situation. And there comes a time when you just have to sit and trust. Have you consider this. And you've got to admire Hezekiah here. He did everything he could. Uh, 2 Chronicles 32, 2 and 5, if you read that you'll find what he did. He strengthened his resources. He cut the water off outside of Jerusalem so the Assyrian army couldn't have access to their water. He, he rebuilt some of the walls and he, he multiplied his weaponry. The second thing he did, he spoke to the people about what was happening. 2 Chronicles 32, 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. So he did his part of encouraging the people. And then, as we've just read, the third thing he did, he sends a delegation out to gain peace. And then the fourth thing he did, he sought godly counsel. He, he gets hold of these three guys who had gone to do the negotiation and he says, man, I want you to go and talk to Isaiah. He was a prophet, which we read about in chapter 37. Talk to him and ask him, what should we do? Hezekiah did all that he could, but there came a time that all he could do with trust. And then he gets a letter. And it was a letter from Sennacherib, and it wasn't his Tetzalano winning numbers. <laughs> we're not told what was in the letter, but we are told that after he read it, <laughs> he goes to the temple. And in 14 and 15, which we read before, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. 
Then he went up to the temple of, of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Have you ever thought that one of the greatest acts of trust is to pray? Have you thought of it like that? When you pray and when I pray, you know what that means? We're saying, God, we need you. I'm bringing this to you. We need you. I'm trusting you. And yeah, you know when people say, well, all we can do is pray, <laughs> as if that's the resolution. But I want to tell you today, it is the total solution of whatever it is that you are facing in terms of your own helplessness. You've had times like I've had times where we, as I've said before, we think we don't know what to do and we're driven to our knees in prayer. I, I, love, I love the story about the Dallas Theological Seminary which was really struggling in America. This is in oh, the early 1900s. And unless they got $10,000 come through, which was a lot of money in the early uh, 1900s, unless they got the $10,000 that came through, they were finished. And there was a prayer meeting of the staff there. And Dr Harry Ironside, who actually is a brother, Dr Harry Ironside um, prayed this prayer. I love it. He said, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some of these cattle to help us meet this need. And shortly after the prayer meeting, a cheque for $10,000 arrived. And it arrived from a man who two or three days before, of course I sent it in the mail, two or three days before, had sold his cattle. And the $10,000 saved the seminary. And I remember once when I was with old YD, we're in a similar situation in our ministry. And I remember saying, Lord, if you do not come through, we're gone. And I heard this story. <laughs> and I said, Lord, I was pretty desperate. <laughs> I was helpless. I said, Lord, you did it for Harry side. Will you do it for us? And you guessed it. Check came in the mail from a Christian guy who was down in the Western District who'd sold some of his cattle. Our God comes through when we pray in moments of helplessness. And that's where we say, my trust starts here. And if you remember the old story of Moses getting Joshua and them to pray while he fought down in the battle, and, and there are times when our hands sag in prayer in helplessness, and we need a couple of people around us to pray with us. I want to encourage you. If, if you are feeling whatever it is, helplessness, in whatever situation it is with you, and you say, Rob, I've tried praying, gather two or three brown. Help them lift your hands up as you express your trust in God to come through. The second thing I learned from this is there is an unseen battle going on here and it goes on in every crisis that you and I face. You see, Sennacherib, he'd already brought in the unseen when he started talking about gods. 
my God's stronger. I've wiped out all these other gods. He, he brought in a spiritual dimension himself. And listen to how the Lord responds via Isaiah to the ridicule of Sennacherib in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 37. This is the Lord speaking. And he is now, this is where there is a spiritual dimension in this whole scene. But I know where you are. And he's talking about Sennacherib here. And when you come and go and how you rage against me, because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. You see, in every situation of crisis in our life, it's not just that which is going on in the seen area of our experience, but there is the unseen. Do you ever pause and think about that in your situation? Lord, I don't know what's going on up there. Do you know, a lion can cover a 100 metres in twice the speed of the guy who's going to win the 100 metres at the Olympics. Five seconds. Can go in six metre bounds. That's nearly 20 feet. That's unbelievable, 20 feet. That's from there. That's huge. Um, and do you know that a lion, when it roars, the roar can be heard from eight away. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? And you know what its weapon is? One of its weapon, main weapons is, is its roar. It's been known to paralyse its prey so that they became easy lion tucker. And it's not without significance that when Peter talks about the devil as a roaring lion, he says, be alert and be sober. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That roar instills fear and paralyzes its prey. Tell me, have you heard that roar this week? A moment when you've been afraid. And isn't it true that when you and I are helpless, fear is very present? And the roar and the whisper even of the devil in our heart and in our minds, which says you're not only helpless, you're without hope, can echo down and absolutely Brutalise our walk with Jesus. You see, there's an unseen battle going on. You're part of that battleground. That's what was happening in this story. They were paralysed with fear in their helplessness in Jerusalem, just like you and I have those moments. That's why we pray, isn't it? That's why we say, I can't do this, I'm going under. Help. And that act of prayer brings trust. The last thing I want to say, the third thing is great work is done 
in deep water. Now the rest of the story, we read it in those last few verses of Isaiah 37. Can you imagine it? In the cold, dark of a Jerusalem night when most of Sennacherib's troops were asleep in their tent. Coming through the night in an unseen way comes the angel of death. 185,000 soldiers are slain by God. And Sennacherib hears about it and he withdraws back to his own hometown not without significance, worshipping his God and the last thing he sees is his sons taking swords and plunging him into his heart and slaying him. And God did exactly what he said. He put a hook in his nose and took it back. It was great work, wasn't it? How the rejoicing must have been that from all of these threats came this deliverance by the hand of God. Amazing deliverance. But they had to go through deep water to experience that deliverance. And you know what is, I found this fascinating because it's not in Isaiah 36, but in Chronicles which tells the same story. This is what it says. You listen to this. This makes the water even deeper. 2 Chronicles 31, 20, 20, 21 and 32, 1 and 2. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. Hezekiah was at the zenith of his reign. He was at the zenith of his relationship with God. He, He... got rid of all the false idols that the previous king had brought into Judah. He'd swept the place clean and now they were all totally given to God. And then it says, get this, in verse 21 of 2 Chronicles, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, you ready for it? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Do you get the significance of that? It wasn't that Sennacherib's presence was there because God was using him as an instrument of discipline because of their idolatrous ways. Judah had never been better. And wouldn't you, if you were Hezekiah, I certainly would have, say, Lord, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. Why are you doing this? Wouldn't you have done that? And isn't it true, in your life and in my life, we have times where we ask questions of God and we say, what are you doing? I'm an innocent person here. I've tried to keep my walk right before you. That's deep water. When you know your walk is right with God and you're in the pit of helplessness and there's no answer. I'm speaking to someone and you've been asking God questions, there's been no answer. Why are my kids like? Why has this happened at work? 
Why does this happen at church? Do you know those, those questions where you ask God and it's like there's nothing but silence? That, my friend, is deep water. Deep water. But great work is done in deep water. That's what happens here. You, you, know, the, you know the story. Let me, I'll finish with this. You know the story of Corrie Ten Boom. Yeah. Um, Dutch lady, actually Dutch reform lady, I found out. I was reading up a bit about it during the week. Um, uh, got saved 800 Jews from the Nazis during the Second World War. And eventually she was captured along with her sister and taken to the Ravensbrook um, women's camp. And I, I really didn't, like I've, I've read a story years ago, but I didn't realise how brutal this women's camp was until I read some secular person describing it. So there was, wasn't um, dressed up in any way whatsoever. Do you know, they, they would, if a woman was caught curling her hair, uh, the guards would lash them with whips. Um, they had what was called 77 rabbits. There were 77 women who they decided to experiment on by gashing their bodies and sticking either dirt or glass or sticks in the wound to see how they would recover. Uh, Corrie Tenboon rescued them because they wanted to execute them after this brutal experiment. It was it, It's in this place that Corrie Tenboon ran Bible studies. It's in this place of deep water that there were people who came to know Jesus. And of course, um, after the war, from that place of deep water, she exercised an incredible ministry throughout the world. But the thing that sticks out in my mind when I read this, and you may have heard this quote, was her, her sister Betsy was like a rock to her during these times. Uh, but Betsy's health gradually deteriorated. And on the 16th of December, 1944, age 59, Betsy passed away in the camp. She was never released. Interestingly, Corrie Dan Boone was accidentally released through a clerical error. And all the other women that were with her were put in the gas chamber. And can you imagine how Corrie must have felt when she saw her sister die not long before the end of the war. And Betsy said, not long before she died, she said this most insightful statement. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Isn't that great? There is no pit, no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Trust. Trust him. Because great work comes out of deep water. And if you are in deep water, expect God to come and do something great. Let's just close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this amazing and incredible story of your deliverance of the people from of Jerusalem.
And we thank you that no matter whether that threat is seen or unseen, that you will deliver us. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who at this moment feel as though that we're in deep water, feeling as though that we are helpless and not knowing a way out, oh Lord, I pray that you would come and put your arms around those people and help them to realise that there is no pit so deep that you're not deeper still and with them. And will you, Lord, we pray, do a great work in their lives. And all of God's people said, Amen. Hey, thanks, Apes. Bye.